Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show. You know, our mission is to serve you with advice and info that empowers you so you can make better financial decisions in your life. Hope that one decision you've made, subscribe to our free newsletters. We work hard on them to give you information that you can act on in your life. That's the whole idea, not just to talk about something, but to have it be something that gives you empowerment to make a change in your life that's great for your wallet or avoid trouble that could be out there. They're free, clark.com slash newsletters. And we've always made it as easy to discontinue your subscription as to sign up. You can stop it right away. It's not going to come in like a zombie over and over again. So, actually, I love our newsletters. I'm going to begin today's show with a red alert. What is the one item I never want you to carry on your person or in a purse or a purse? One item. We're going to talk about it straight ahead. And recently I spoke about the terrible problems with pricing and availability in the homeowner's insurance market. Well, I then read about a service that you can check out what's the risk that insurers are looking at, basically, at a home you're thinking of buying or a home you live in and you're having trouble getting homeowner's insurance, you want to see what is the risk of damage to that home from increasing storm activity? So you up front are informed, or if you're already in, you're like, oh, that's why nobody wants to insure me. So we're going to talk about that later. What is the one thing that I'm talking about that I'm teasing to you that should not be on your person or in your purse? A checkbook. Carrying a checkbook has become one of the most dangerous forms of identity theft that exists. Criminal, if they get that checkbook, can write checks as if they're you, steal money from you that's hard to get back, and can lead to criminal charges against you as a victim of a crime. Happens regularly, has been a problem. You being arrested because somebody wrote a bad check as if they're you has been a problem for decades. The banking industry's never gotten their arms around it. Law enforcement never gotten their arms around it. And now the check theft problem has skyrocketed at a time that the number of checks Americans are writing in any form or fashion has dropped like a rock. 
And now the weakest link in the system is checks in the mail. Criminals have done armed robberies of postal workers. They have bought off postal workers. And they have gotten the keys that allow criminals to open transit boxes with mail. And what the criminals do is they steal the mail out of the box. They run off with it, drive off with it. And they go through and they find all the checks that people have written that they have mailed. And then they use simple, over-the-counter stuff like nail polish, wipe out the payee, wipe out the amounts, and steal money out of your account. The organization you're paying never got the money. There you are with somebody having stolen money from your account. And as has been detailed in a long investigative series by the New York Times, banks, when somebody steals your check, and passes it and steals money from the accounts, the banks are treating you, particularly the biggest banks in the country, are treating you as the criminal, as the perpetrator, and closing all your accounts and not giving you back your money. The New York Times series is shocking. By the way, the bank that they've been targeting the most, they're hearing the most about, is the nation's largest bank, which may follow, since they have the most market share, it's Chase. But many other banks have been written about in this series. But the problem with the stolen checks is crazy. Then we've got the problem with banks' own bill pay services. So you make a payment through the electronic bill pay service of your bank, but there are a lot of people they don't have an electronic link to. And what do they do? They print out a paper check and they mail it. Now, smart financial institutions... Don't list your account number on that check. They just send that payment off. and They know internally whose account that check is debiting from. But a lot of banks and credit unions and bill pay services still put your personal account number on it as if you just wrote a check and sent it in the mail and leaving you vulnerable. It's crazy. So know that this is a key target in the system. And today, what's the best way to pay? Electronic. And when you don't pay electronic, the burden of everything falls back on you. Let's say you're paying a regular bill, utility bill, credit card bill, rent, whatever. Where can you now pay that bill routinely? At their own website. It's more hassle than just going to your one bill pay service and sending payments, it has become the safest way in payments to pay a bill is if you have, let's talk about Chase again. You have a Chase credit card, I think the largest issuer of cards in the country. You go to Chase's website and you pay your bill there electronically. I'm not a big fan normally of you doing automatic payments where you give permission for them to come take the money. I like for you to manually do it. But if you know you're a flakazoid and you may forget to pay your bill, then if you want to set it up automatically, you're giving up some procedural rights doing that, but do that. But paying direct has become the best way to pay today. Okay, we'll go to questions now. This came in from Daniel in Georgia. 
With last year's ChatGPT and AI image generation becoming so close to indistinguishable from reality, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how to prepare for a rapidly changing employment landscape. I've heard many futurists suggest that large percentages of people will become unemployed by AI in as soon as a few years as the pace of AI technology accelerates. What can a white collar employee do to prepare as it seems like it will hit us first? What about the college savings we're accumulating for our kids? Should we slow down? It seems in 10 years when my oldest goes to school, it may be futile with the entire job classes being eliminated year over year. Thanks for being my commute companion until robot overlords arrive. Well, Daniel, it's not actually Clark. <laughs> it's AI generated answering your question. No. <laughs> so Daniel, AI will have job implications, but the job market through history always has gone through job rotation, career rotation. Jobs become obsolete. I think about the modern factory. Do you know the United States produces more goods today than it ever has, but the percent of people employed in factories is teensy tiny now because of automation in factories. I think about Farms, 97% of Americans used to work on farms, mostly family farms. Today, a tiny fraction of 1% of people work on farms, and they produce more food than they ever have. What happens with the nature of work is you point out perfectly, your child or children could go to college, get a degree, and within years of getting that degree, the degree they have becomes irrelevant for the most part in the marketplace. And this happens throughout history, not necessarily with that. It could be, think about, there's an example given often in business schools about buggy whips. You know, people who made buggy whips, made horse-drawn carriages, all that. There came a time in the early 1900s, they became surplus. And so it's something we have to be prepared for. And Daniel, more than you and I, your kids have to be flexible in the workforce, in the workplace, because the nature of work is going to change so much, but it has throughout time. I don't have added fear about AI, except with disinformation. Bob in Florida says, with the change in 529 rules allowing leftover funds to be rolled into a Roth, as a grandparent, we're changing the purpose of our present 529 contributions to the express purpose of later rolling into a Roth. We've decided that when the time comes for college, we will help out with additional funding beyond the 529 contributions, so there is no reason not to roll into the Roth. Is this a smart idea? you got to be careful doing this, yes, but you may over the years put in contributions into a 529 and the earnings may grow enough that even though you were intending for it to be under the $35,000 cap, you may exceed it. So if your strategy is to do this, what you do is you contribute to the 529 and you make sure if it's grown better than you expected, that you do use some of that money as the original intent keeping it low enough that as you take distributions over the years, because it's a long-term payout, converting 
529 money into Roth, that you don't end up in a situation with an excessive amount of funds in the account. This is going to require some real massaging because the purpose of this was not to do what you're interested in doing, and many other people have already asked me about this, is to use it as a backdoor method of getting a meaningful amount of money into a kid or grandkid's Roth. The purpose of it was if somebody goes to college, they end up getting a scholarship or whatever, that the parents don't say, well, wow, that was a bad idea. Look at the taxes I'm having to pay. That it lowered the risk and hopefully will increase the amounts contributed to 529 accounts. Jane in Pennsylvania says, I just saw the story about how to limit spending. Here's another tip I learned reading the artist's way. Keep a log of expenditures, even if it's just a quarter for a parking meter. Keep a little notebook of daily expenses. It's a concrete way of seeing how much you spend every day. I have discovered it has an added benefit. If there's a charge you don't recognize on a bill, you can double check and see if you actually made that purchase. I had a couple of charges on a credit card that just say eBay on them. And it turned out that they actually were legit purchases. I'd just forgotten what I'd purchased, a book and a stuffed toy. When I looked up that date in my notebook. So this is awesome, Jane. So this used to be something that we had on Clark.com. Years ago, we had in the analog era, we had a log you could print out that you folded and you put in your wallet or purse and you kept track of every penny you spent. And that's because behaviorally, you're right on the money. And the author of this book, The Artist's Way. Julia Cameron. Julia is talking about exactly what we used to have. Now, why did we not do it anymore? Because people became so digital, they weren't downloading it anymore. It was funny, you had to go to a digital site to download an analog form. But there were years that this was a very popular thing on our website. And today, because people are such a digital mind, it's harder to keep track of expenses. So I love pen and paper to keep track because it does make you stop and think. And you can look at it just like you said, and it helps you make sure that what you're being billed for is actually what you spent. I think it's great. So coming up ahead, there's been so much in the news and on our podcast, and with questions we get in our Team Clark Consumer Action Center. Your homeowner's insurer wants to dump you. They want to raise your premiums crazy amounts. What if you could predict the future? What are the odds that your insurer is coming for you? There's now a website. You can do that. I'm going to explain to you how it works. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds— 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I have a very privileged life, and I'm very lucky that I've been able to afford for many years to have a place at the beach. Our homeowner's insurance at the beach is so ridiculously high, it's just stunning. Our deductible is monstrously large, and I still sit in fear that at some point, the insurer who's charging us so much money for so little is going to cancel us completely. It's a risk we face being at the beach. And it's a risk that my wife and I talk about that we're spoiled brats, that this is something we love and we do. And, and we're there with our eyes open. What's funny is there's a website called climatecheck.com that you can go to and get an instant analysis It's more like horseshoes. It's not going to be exactly precise, but you see the risk of your dwelling. So just for fun, I put in our address at the beach and surprise, surprise, the risk we face is off the charts. And as I've said before, why would any insurer in their right mind sell anybody insurance who's in that kind of risk? And that's obviously what the problem has been. But there are many other circumstances that I discussed recently on the podcast where an insurer might decide, "Uh uh-oh, too much fire risk here, too much this risk, that risk, the other risk, and either refuse to sell you insurance or sell it at a crazy high price. And so I put in other addresses on Climate Check that are not obvious like a beach address. And you learn so much. I don't know who did this. The business model is they give you basic information. And if you want deeper dive, uh, you can pay money to get a deeper dive of the risk at an address. And the reason I'm mentioning climatecheck.com, because I don't need to know that if you look at it just for money, I'm an idiot living at the beach. But Gosh, it's crazy. My heart rate, my blood pressure, my mood. I mean, it's like the beach is like a trance on me. I'm a water baby. It's just what I am. So it's a cost that I have to keep every year when the bill comes. What am I doing? The thing is, if you're looking at buying a place, wherever it is, it's not an obvious risk. And seeing, uh uh-oh, there's risk of groundwater flooding there. It doesn't look like there could be, but there's risk of that here or risk of fire or whatever it is. You can get a sense at climate check. And I imagine over time, other people are going to come up with databases like this, where you can put in an address, either where you live now or a place you're thinking of buying and see what the risk level is. Another thing, Before you go under contract to buy a home, 
if you have a regular insurer or an agent, I want you to talk with that agent or talk with your insurer and find out before you go under binding contract what the difficulty is going to be placing insurance at an address. It's not obvious to you and I, particularly moving to a new area, what the risks are, what things have happened or could happen in that area that insurance underwriters are like, this is a no-go. And that's why I want you to take these additional steps. Know before you buy. It's like know before you dig with the utilities. Mm -hmm. Know before you buy. All right, we'll go to questions. This came in from Peter in Maryland. I would like to get your opinion on donor advised funds. My retirement advisor recently recommended them to me as a way to reduce my long-term capital gains tax on shares of appreciated stock. I typically contribute around $20,000 a year total to my church and other local charities, and I currently have greater than $100,000 in unrealized gains in my Schwab brokerage account. I see that there are fees associated with DAFs, but the fees are small compared to the 15% long-term capital gains tax savings. It seems like a no-brainer to me. In this case or in general, are there any reasons not to use DAF for charitable contributions? I love donor-advised funds, if you do them the right places. Uh, You mentioned Schwab. Schwab has a very good, low-cost donor-advised fund. It's kind of like having your own micro-foundation at a fraction of the cost. So what happens is you give an appreciated stock or fund or whatever to it, and you get a double benefit in that tax year. You don't pay capital gains on the gain a stock or fund may have had over decades. So you get that, what's known as step-up in basis, tax-free, and then you get a tax deduction on the full amount of the contribution. By comparison, If you sold a stock, you'd have to pay the gain on it. And if you donated it to charity, the money, the proceeds, it's much less valuable than if you do it through the donor-advised fund. So donor-advised funds are very affordable at my three favorite children, Fidelity, Vanguard, and Schwab. They're the cheapest at Vanguard. They are atrociously expensive with any bank-based donor advised fund. Be aware, unless you hate the charities you'd like to give to, never do a donor advised fund with any bank-based or bank-affiliated brokerage. These things are so flexible because the way it works, you donate the stock or fund or whatever to, in your case, the Schwab one. So you give the money to the Schwab charitable fund. Then you have an account established there, and we'll call it Peter the Generous Fund, or whatever you want to call it, and you donate it, and then you have this account, and then you can recommend who you want to donate money to, in your case, your church, and they validate that it's a valid charitable organization, and then they accept your recommendation, and then they send a check to it, from you. You don't get another deduction. You already took the deduction, but the church will know you donated the money and same for any other charity. And one of the cool things about it is fake charities end up being blocked. They can't get any of this money. 
More money to the charity. That's right. Jay in Maryland says, lucky me, my timeshare closed on October 31st of 2023. Close, close, is gone? It will not reopen. (laughs) I have received a notice of an emergency assessment for fiscal year 23 to 24 of $399 plus $999 for 2024 and an additional $999 due in 2025. I have no problem with the $399, but the two $999 fees seem ridiculous, paying for something I can't ever use again. I was current on my fees up to this point. You have a suggestion for me moving forward? Okay, this is so amazing. So you have a timeshare that fails, is closed, and financial obligations allegedly live on. Timeshares are great, huh? Boy, do I despise them. All right, so here's what I want you to be about right now is Jay, I want you to get on the Timeshare Users Group website. Find your fellow owners, and is it still the crazy web address? T-U-G, the number two, dot net. So tug two, dot net. Timeshare Users Group, number two, dot net. So you go to tug two, dot net. Find your fellow owners. Organize yourselves. Find out what you can, what, what you're doing individually and the owners need to organize of these timeshare weeks because or points because you may need to hire a lawyer who specializes to fight this for all of you it's much cheaper if you organize yourselves because that sounds so unconscionable that you'd be billed twenty four hundred dollars and who knows what they'll come back to you for for twenty six or 27 or 28 for a place that doesn't even exist anymore that you can't go to. And that's the beauty of Timeshare Users Group. I would also look on Reddit because a lot of people go to Reddit oh, for this posting kind of thing. On Reddit? Yeah. Okay. Thank you as an additional sure. suggestion. Let us know what you find out and what you collectively do as owners. Sarah and Georgia says, I've heard Clark warn about the perils of buy now, pay later. And while I agree with the sentiment of not spending money you don't have, I have to say that I really don't see the downside, assuming it is 0% APR on something I was going to buy anyway. To be clear, I'm generally very debt averse. Aside from my house, I've never once purchased something I didn't have the cash to pay for on the spot. I pay off my credit cards in full every month. But lately, Amazon will offer me the choice of charging my credit card all at once or charging the amount over three months. And I really don't see the downside to choosing the latter option. I was going to spend the money anyway, and I can't forget to make the payment since it's automatic. This kind of sounds like free money to me. It seems like only a good thing to keep the money and earn interest for an additional two months. Is there something I'm missing here? (sighs) Okay, how do I answer (laughs) this? So we're talking about a pay-in-four plan. The way Amazon has worded it to you would be pay-in-three. So you're not the problem. It's no issue for you, Sarah if you want to do it, because you've laid out how you handle money. The problem with paying for is the consumer behavior of people who buy things. They already have debts here, there, and everywhere. And it allows them to buy stuff that their income and expenses really means they can't afford. That's why so many people are ruining their credit, getting hassled by debt collectors, being hit with penalties and fees and interest. So yes, if you look empirically at your personal situation and how money exists in your life, you're fine. 
you're picking up a little extra gravy paying in four. The problem with paying four is not your situation. It's most of the time that people use paying four. So you want to do that? Go for it. It will give you a small benefit and no harm. But if you hear me say this to Sarah, don't think this means you're okay because I said Sarah's okay to use paying four because the stats show for most people, it's not working out. Well, I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Hope you have an absolutely wonderful rest of your day. Remember what we're about. Save more, spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off.